Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, we've got the columnist and commentator Andrea Walker, uh, anthropologist Mariana Hotter, and professor of political economy and international relations Lee Jones. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co. by now. Surely it's not just about us here. No, it is not. It is about you at home as well and your thoughts. What is on your mind tonight? What do you think about the stories that I've just said we'll be discussing? What have I missed? By the way got to be honest, I know, I know, I know that BBC, Sky News, everyone, everywhere is talking about Partygate. I've followed the goings-on in the House of Commons today, but I'm losing the will to live when it comes to going around and around and around this circle of ridiculousness now in politics. Quite frankly, I personally think we all just deserve so much better than all of this. I don't, as I say often, I know that many people are outraged by what Boris Johnson has done with all of these so-called parties, which to me, by the way, are just a bit of gathering at the end of a workday in his office. Um, you know what? If all of these Tories, etc., are so unhappy with their leader, get a vote of co no confidence in there, change him, get on with it, spare me this ridiculousness. Um, and if you don't mind... I don't have it in me to debate this topic yet again tonight. If, however, you are desperate to share your views with me, get in touch, gbviews at gbnews.uk or tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, listen to us on radio, catch us on social media. I promise, I do always try and cover the most important uh, component parts of Partygate, but to me... There's just not that many buts. If you're interested, get in touch, let me know. But for now, I want to talk about something else. What do I want to talk about? Well, life at the moment, it's not easy for many of us, is it? And just as we're starting to get back on our feet after the whole lockdown, the disruption and all the rest of it, there's some more disruption on its way, potentially. The Rail Maritime and Transport Union has announced plans for what is being called, I quote, the biggest rail strike in modern history. This is um, amid an ongoing dispute about jobs and pay. More than 40,000 railway workers are going to vote on whether to take strike action, which could begin as early as June. The RMT said Network Rail intends to cut at least 2,500 maintenance jobs as part of a £2 billion reduction in spending across the network. Rail workers, by the way, average a salary of £40,000 annual, uh, which is, of course, above the average salary across the UK. Now, panel, where do we sit on this? Um, I don't want anyone to be unfairly kind of impacted at the moment. Every, the cost of everything is going up and everyone naturally, understandably, by the way, wants their pay to follow suit and match rates of inflation, which, by the way, they're off the Richter scale at the moment. Is that realistic, Marianne? Um, are the unions right in what they're doing? Should we be supporting this strike action? Your thoughts? I think there's, there's two aspects. One is what the RMT have said is a safety issue, because if you're cutting 2,500 jobs that are linked to safety on the railways, then what is the potential impact? Are all those people, are all those roles genuinely superfluous, or is there going to be a knock-on impact on the safety of the railways? 
for passengers. I go on the railway, my loved ones go on the railway, you guys use trains. We need a public transport system that works, that is fit for purpose, that is future-proofed. And so I think it's, it's really easy, isn't it, to assume that the trades unions just want to cause trouble in order to justify their existence. Some, Some people do that. Well, they kind of go, well... Well, actually, you know, oh, they always like striking. Gives them something to do. They don't want to work with the employers. They want to cause trouble. But I think that's just a really wrong-headed way of looking at it. And a point where lots of people, lots of your viewers will be sitting at home going, I feel quite helpless about this cost of living crisis. I don't necessarily feel like my elected politicians are taking it seriously. I mean, we saw how little Rishi Sunak did for people in the, in the spring statement. This is one of the ways that we actually have control and power and a voice as people, as employees. And so I think we probably do need to get behind the unions and say, you know, when you do a poll of your, your, um, your members, do it properly, do it seriously, be at those negotiating table, tables with um, a sort of a true heart, you know, go into it open-minded and trying to find resolution because that is ultimately in everybody's best interest, including members, including people who work on the railways. But ultimately, striking is the peaceful, democratic way of saying this is not OK, this is not in our name. It's not, uh, not acceptable. Is it acceptable, all some of the goings-on, Andre? Well, let me tell you this. The, the chap on the London Underground who says, all change, Waterloo, all change, on the microphone, earns £38,000 a year. I think most people watching this would say shouting all change, Waterloo, is not a particularly difficult job and doesn't require a great deal of training. He probably does more than that, to be well, fair. Well, OK, with. fine. But I, I'm and perhaps, also, if there were a fire, and perhaps, and perhaps, the front line. And perhaps I'm being slightly disparaging, but I think the clear, the clear point is these salaries are absolutely vast. So if you, I take the West Coast Main Line on a regular basis, what we used to call uh, Virgin Trains, you know, your, your average driver is going to be on the thick end of £100,000. <clears> now, once again, it's not a particularly, in my view, difficult job to do. You don't have to train like you have to do to be a lawyer or a doctor. Look, the critical point is this. We, in recent years, Thank have improved... Just, sorry, it's only, just, it's only just sunk into my head there. Did you just say the average train driver is on £100,000? The thick end of 100000 on the West Coast Main Line. Yes, they are. It's 70000 basic plus overtime. You will get the thick end of £100,000 right. a year. viewers, you know what to do. Down tools, get your job applications in. That would be... That would, but, that, but, but, that, but that would be very difficult to do because the union controls the recruitment in a way that's very similar to what used to happen in the United States of America with the with the closed shop and what happened in Britain in the 1970s. I'll tell you one thing that's really important to bear in mind. Since changes were made to the railways, I don't call it privatisation because it's not full privatisation. The Department for Transport is still largely in charge. The level of safety has improved in the United Kingdom. We had, I think in 2002, the first year ever that nobody died on the railways uh, since, the, since their inception. And that is a, a step forward. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> because actually the reality is, what we just heard from you mm. is an assumption that that just because you have lots and lots of people earning lots and lots of money, safety improves. The reality is, actually, you need to be much more razor-sharp and much more focused, and I don't think the trade unions are supportive of that. I think the trade unions are supportive of a closed shop that costs us a fortune. And by the way, listen, if people don't believe me on the figures for what 
these people earn, you're perfectly welcome to go and check it out. The, it is a bonanza. It's not that I don't whipping. believe you. I think it's quite... I might be tempted to uh, <laughs> apply myself. I can do those announcements. All change, water... Oh, no, they don't get 100, do they? they get no, 20. no, they're not quite on that much, no. Oh, right. Well, northern accents, all change. Anyway, Lee, uh, what do you think to all this? Unions, are they doing a good job in this? So I think there's two different issues, as Mary-Anne says. There's the safety issue, that it's actually completely wrong to suggest that safety has improved since privatisation. I just went this afternoon on the office for the rail regulator to check. So since 2003 to 2020, deaths on the railway have increased 15%, injuries are up 10%. So when the RMT says there are safety issues, they're not wrong about that. Then there's the, the broader issue about uh, pay, employment and so on. Lots of people love to hate the RMT, but what the RMT demonstrates over and over again is that strong union density in the workplace, having lots of people be a member of the union, which is not the same as a closed shop. Closed shop was abolished many years ago. But having lots of people in the union and then being willing to take industrial action, that's what defends pay and conditions mm. and employment. So you look at what the, the railway workers are earning and... Yeah, it's, it's a lot of money. And I, I'm sure that a lot of people would like to be on that kind of money. What's the difference between them and the RMT? The RMT are unionised and they're willing to use their, their, their democratic the, power the to fight the, for the, the conditions difference, of the their difference, members. The difference is an ability to bully people by shutting down the country. I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to change the law so that in your industrial dispute, if what you're arguing about, as in a small pay rise, is grossly disproportionate to the, to the damage that's done to the economy, you should pay the bill. I, see, I think the RMT should be allowed to go on strike all day as long as I can get a taxi and expense it to the RMT. Let's level the playing field a little bit because the reality is the government has an unlimited budget travelers are forced into traveling forced into buying tickets forced onto the railways that's why they're doing so well because they're actually just bullying the public i think these guys i think these guys let me tell you another something else what what was it when the olympics came along and we were threatened with a tube strike a tube strike during the olympics unless there was a 1000 pound bonus given to drivers to do their own job during the Olympics. What an absolute disgrace. Oh, and by the way, let's not lest lest we forget the the the, tra the strikes that took place during 40 years ago when we were preparing for the Falklands. These people are interested in bullying the British taxpayer, bullying the British motorist, bullying the British rail traveller in order to make off like a bandit. I make it. I, I just find it baffling that you say these people. These people are taxpayers. They're people who have jobs and families and mortgages <laughs> and gas bills. They're not different from the person who works well, in Sainsbury's hey, or the person who works hey, in... Hey, if you earn 100000 a year, home. you're different to somebody who works in Sainsbury's, believe me. I don't earn hundred grand a year. I'm and just... I, I think that... I, I don't know. I can't... I can't um, I can't counter it with, with kind of evidence to suggest that it does sound like quite a lot to me. Um, the, the truth is, I think, for once, it doesn't happen often, but I agree with you, Lee. Yeah, I think, I think we are in this really weird time in history where people who would otherwise be a voice of the people are actually against the union, and that is just really odd to me because a union is a way to protect your rights as a taxpayer, as a normal working person in our country. The, big, be, the, biggest, should... the biggest rail strike in history is not protecting the taxpayer, let's just be clear. Lee. It's an absolute financial disaster. Lee? Deliberate. We should be clear that real pay is falling over 7% this year. 
So that's a, that's a massive cost of living crisis for millions of ordinary people. And the question is, what do you do about that? Do you just accept that? which for many people means penury, it means eating less, it means not being able to heat their homes, or do you fight back? And what are the mechanisms that working people have to fight back? We have political parties that don't represent ordinary working class people anymore. Neither the Tories nor the so-called Labour Party represent the working poor anymore. And frankly, most of the unions don't either. The RMT stands out by being the militant one that actually fights for its members. And, and the, the results are there to, to be seen. They have, they, have, they have safer employment. They have better terms and conditions. They have better pay. So the answer to all this is to fight, a, fight join a union and make it fight for your own but, purposes. But let me play a devil's advocate with you, um, Lee, because you talk about uh, real terms, pay cut, and everyone, no one's going to dispute that. That is the case for many, many people in this country at the moment. The prices, they've not stopped, by the way. Inflation is not just going to stop there. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. This cost of living crisis, we'll be talking in a minute about what's going on in China, because you're going to see even more supply disruption, probably more uh, price increases along all this stuff goes on. So to your point, your central point there you just made about uh, people essentially getting a real-term wage cut. Mm. The devil's advocate in all of this is if we follow kind of your logic, which is it's a terrible thing, let's raise everyone's uh, wages. The flip side of that is let's just pick train drivers as the example because this is what we're currently talking about. So let's raise these train drivers' um, wages more in line with inflation what that then will mean is a knock-on effect onto train prices, travel prices, which will mean that the cost of living will get worse because the ordinary, the ordinary people now that don't work on a train but want to use a train, it's going to cost them far more to use a train. So now they're going to need even more pay rises to keep up with this cost of the train fare. And around and around and around and around you go. So we have to somewhere get some kind of happy medium. And I personally think, and it's an awful... Uh, thing to kind of have to comprehend. But I do think, actually, that it's unrealistic that pay, uh, that benefits are going to be able to keep up with inflation. So who's taking should... the extra money from the yeah. inflation then? Well, it'll be the train companies. And I actually think... So, so let's just say if a shop is putting up its prices by 10% or a bar or a train company or whatever, if that money's not going to workers in the form of higher pay, which it isn't because we've got a 7% real terms pay cut... Where's the money going? Sorry, the answer, well, no, the we're, talking, we're talking about if a worker, let's just say a worker is on whatever now and gets that 10% pay rise, so they get what I'm saying to you, they get what you I want. I understood, so they I understood the, the logic of your point. will be paying that. I understood the logic of your point. But the point is if prices are going up, but that money is not going to get, deliver inflation-busting pay rises... But it would be. That's the point. where is that... But what you've just, what you've just you, said you is wholly irrelevant. What Michelle said, and I think you understood her perfectly well, is if everybody's pay goes up in the railways, the price of the tickets will go up and that will make the cost of living crisis worse. The it's price got nothing, of the ticket, I mean, Andre... Look, 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 your point's about more general inflation. I mean, the obvious answer to that is it's because we're heavily reliant on foreign oil, we're heavily reliant on ludicrous net-zero green Wait, technologies pause, pause, pause and there's a war in the breadbasket of Europe, so, but that's not what we're talking about. on that for a minute. But hang on, because these two are very bright people, so they got my point, so I'm obviously missing uh, No, no, he, he was just trying to argue it backwards. Sorry, Lee, you were. Um, What's your basically, name? Get out. <laughs> basically, that money goes to the shareholders or to the private owners of that train company. It doesn't stay in the loop. It gets siphoned off by people who probably can afford to, um, you know, pay their mortgages and eat three square meals a day and send their kids on holiday. 
So it's not, not that not, it stays not because actually. it's not you, a public service. It's not where actually the way the rails are financed. Stay within. It's not the and way. it's a political choice it's that we have a privatised public services that mean that money is siphoned off would, to shareholders would, or to directors. Which would we have be fine. It with, wait, we have it with water. We have it with energy companies. We have it with public transport and. It's a political and economic decision that we've all, well, some of us have sleptwalked into, and I think others have manipulated Which... and planned and gamed the system so that we all think that that's just how it should be. And it isn't. There is a different way of running our economy. There is a different way of running our society I, I, that I, I, actually I, 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 rewards the people who work the hardest. And it isn't the politicians, and so it isn't you, those you boards of directors. The it's the people who run care homes and nursery centres and drive buses. So you would have, for example, train services fully nationalised? So non-profit, nationalised, the government, you'd have the government running train services? I would... Fully running? No, probably not, because then you introduce inefficiencies and you have an alternative set of, of problems and man management issues that we have to decide as a society, as, as a set of political classes making policy decisions and funding decisions. So you kind of swap one set of issues for another one. But I certainly don't think that the system we have now is fair. I don't think it works for people who are watching TV now going, actually, we're not going anywhere this summer, or actually... We haven't got any money at the end of this week. I'm going to have to pull, take out a loan until the next payday. Well, that is the reality for people in this country right now. That is up. not OK. Let me open this to you at home because, you know, I get it. We all, none of us want to be out of pocket. None of us want to see our wages essentially going backwards when everything uh, cost-wise is going up. But let me ask you this, you know, who does pay for these pay rises, not just on rail. Let's just broaden it out because this is affecting everyone everywhere. Every single person is going to be feeling this squeeze right now in their wages. Everyone is going to be saying, well, actually, not the I fat want a pay rise. Who? Not, not the fat cats. Not those folk who are earning not 100 grand for driving a train, but 900 grand plus share um, bonuses and benefits and pensions well, packages. I do think, and I mean, I've voiced this um, opinion multiple times, I am a capitalist at heart, but I'm a responsible capitalist. And I do find it fascinating because I personally think it would be such a stroke of PR genius. And I won't be so cynical uh, as to suggest that many companies do whatever looks good PR-wise. But um, I am surprised, actually, that more companies... I'm, in fact, I'm surprised that none of them, actually, not a single one that I know of anyway, have actually come out and said, uh, guys, you know what, we want your custom, we value your custom, so let's be in this together. So for the next six months, we're going to reduce our profit margins by, I don't know, X percent. I think whichever company... Why are you that, surprised by that? Because the what I the, think... The purpose of a company is to maximise the profits that it delivers to its shareholders. That is the purpose of a company under capitalism. I don't, the point, but the you point do that, that. I think... You the point that, I was trying respond. to make earlier on was this. That Do it when, very briefly, though, when you take a break as well. When you've, paid, <laughs> when you've paid for all the costs yeah. that is needed to produce a good or service, then you've got a question about what happens to the margin between the cost and the price. That's going to be divvied up between profits for shareholders or the owners of the company and wages. And what we've seen in this country over the, over the course of decades is the share going to workers in the form of wages has collapsed over time when the proportion going to shareholders has increased. So when, we, when we're in a moment of inflation, the question is who's going to pay for this inflationary crisis? Is it going to be workers or shareholders? It shouldn't be workers. Agreed. Well, let me know your thoughts. And the reason, by the way, I'm surprised that companies haven't come out and made a suggestion to limit their, or not limit, but restrict their profits in the short term, 
is because ultimately, yes, of course, all businesses need to create profit for their shareholders, for their owners, whoever that might be. But ultimately, if a customer literally cannot afford your product or service, they will not purchase it. So for me, it's just basics. I would want to retain the customers I've had. Uh, in fact, actually, I'd like to get some more by being the most competitively priced product or service in the market. So therefore, if I had, say, an energy company or whatever, I would announce a profit. I'd explain it to my shareholders. It's an interim measure to retain customers and actually get some new ones. And in the long term, we'll see even more profits. That's what I would say. But let me know your thoughts on all of that. I tell you now, we could sit and talk about the cost of living all day long, which is why, by the way, I don't want to waste precious debating time going round and around and around in stupid circles about parties and all the rest of it. Anyway, some of you are interested in that, uh, some of you less so. Get in touch, GB uh, News, uh, sorry, GBviews at GBnews.uk. Tell me what you think. Uh, when we come back, we'll be touching a little bit uh, on more of the same when it comes to price increases, because I worry that not enough people are focusing on what is going on in Shanghai at the moment. And I worry that it is going to start really affecting you. I refer, of course, to their, what I would call ludicrous uh, pursuits of zero COVID, but particularly what it is going to do to supply chains. I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery. Lots of people writing in today. I've got to say that there is quite a sense um, of gratitude that we've skipped Partygate tonight. Uh, you're welcome. I'll give you a night off. I dare say it's not going anywhere, so we can always come back to it if we need to. Um, Terry says, you know, when it comes to the unions, all of this was only a matter of time. We need a very strong stance on this, he says. John says, I remember the strikes of the 60s and 70s. This country was a laughing stock as a result and enormous damage was done to the economy. He says, it seems that the unions want to take us back to that nightmare. Peter says, uh, I totally oppose any kind of strike. In capital letters, roger that, Peter. Uh, nothing like capital letters to get the message across. That's what I say. Um, <laughs> Elizabeth says, it was not mentioned that train fares could do with being affordable. These days they are not. Um, well, yeah, I hear you, Elizabeth. I think train fares can be extortionate, which I won't mind, by the way, if the train actually turned up on time. Half the time, it doesn't, though, does it? Anyway, let's move on, shall we? A European business group has warned that Western companies are being badly affected by the latest lockdown in Shanghai. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds uh, of ships seen here in green. But I know that some of you are listening to us on the radio and not watching. Uh, so for your benefit, I am showing a map, basically showing a load of dots which represent uh, essentially traffic jams. Let's simplify this when it comes to uh, shipping and supply chains. Now, whilst many firms might have restarted operations, I have to say that you know, this, I don't even think we've seen even the tip of the iceberg yet. This is all about, in case you're wondering what's going on, this is all about what I would personally call the ridiculous um, attempt to chase zero COVID in Shanghai. Obviously, Shanghai is a huge business hub. They essentially pretty much shut the entire thing down. Lee, I mean, this is uh, one of your areas of expertise. I worry about the impact of this. And I also worry, by the way, that not a lot of people are talking about it. Mm. I mean... 
we should be clear that the quest for zero COVID in China has already had an impact on living standards in the West because what we've just been talking about, the inflationary impact and how to respond to it, that inflation has been triggered by the policy of lockdown and the shortages of goods and services, particularly goods, that that has caused. So when you shut down production facilities or when you shut down transit points like railways or ports and so on, you create shortages of goods and you create backlogs in the distribution system like shipping. So if, if, if a ship has not picked up its cargo at point A, it has a knock-on impact on where it should be at point B and so on. So there's many, many ships that are just simply not where they're supposed to be. So that creates all kinds of bottlenecks in supply chains. Companies then try to find alternatives if they can legally, if they can get out of contracts, and that bids up the price of the goods that are available. So it's, it's the lockdowns that we've had that have built up this inflationary pressure in the global economy. When it comes to Shanghai, it's going to have a very severe impact, much more than the lockdowns in, in Wuhan, for example, because the Shanghai port is the most busy port in the entire world. Last year, it handled cargo worth $640 billion. The current lockdowns in China are affecting about 373 million people, covering 40% of the Chinese economy. So, and the Shanghai port exports about, deals about, about a fifth of China's cargo. So when you shut down that part of the economy, that's going to have a major impact on the world because we have become so dependent in the global economy on just one part of the world to serve as the manufacturing base for so many of the things that we use in our everyday life. So this is a product of the policies of globalisation pursued since the 1980s, where we've outsourced um, so much of our production base to lower-cost authoritarian regimes, where precisely they can suppress labour, they can destroy trade unions and pay people a pittance, which therefore reduces the price. So this is basically the the pigeons coming home to roost, or the chickens the coming chickens home to roost, I should say. Home, the pigeons The pigeons, I'm channeling my granddad are coming there. home to roost. Uh, Marianne? <clears throat> um, I don't think we can ever protect ourselves completely from these kinds of global supply chain shocks because ours is a globalised world. Unless we are willing to accept here a radical overhaul of our expectations for living standards, for our lifestyle, so that we're actually going, unless you make it here, you don't have it. And then you're looking at something like East Germany, where you, um, you know, pre... pre uh, pre-Berlin Wall coming down, where you kind of go, well, would you like the brown car or the brown car? Neither of them really work. Um, unless, we're, unless we're genuinely willing to accept something that moves us along that road, then we kind of have to accept that there are going to be these um, events on the other side of the world, or indeed in Ukraine, the breadbasket, as you described it, Andre, uh, which has an impact on wheat prices. It has mm. an impact on fertiliser, which might have an impact in North and Central Sub-Saharan Africa. It might it'll have an impact on us. It'll have an impact on meat prices and dairy price, all the rest of it. It has this massive knock on. And you go, crikey, the world is in connect interconnected in ways that I hadn't even realised. Um, we, we have to build resilience because... Actually, some of this is going to be um, global healthcare related. Some of it's going to be climate related. And there's going to be more and more of these global shocks to the system that we are going to have to tolerate and build resilience to. So actually, suck it up. We need to work out ways to live with this rather than try and prevent Suck it. Suck it up. We need to uh, work out ways to live with it. By the way, uh, we always talk about climate change, don't we? And people are really quick to say things like uh, the UK only uh, emits, is it 1% of uh, the emissions? And China does God knows how much. But one of the reasons for that, of course, is that as we were touching on earlier on, 
so much of the manufacturing, etc., mm. is outsourced mm. to China. Anyway, I digress. Andre. Well, I don't think you do, actually. I think it's an incredibly important point. The big, you know, oh, thank in you. regular... <laughs> good malware you can, is you, you, you can tell <laughs> tenor. Uh, <laughs> but actually, you know, in some years, the biggest export from the port of Southampton is rubbish to be recycled. Now, whether that be metal or whether it just be junk, I think that's a really, really sad fact. But what we've done in terms of uh, of the climate emergency, quote unquote, is that we put huge green taxes on local businesses and allowed that work to be exported to China. People were complaining in Wales about Tata Steel going bust. It went bust because of the green taxes that were put on. So, so when we talk about moving to a green economy, we are eradicating manufacturing in our country in order to move it to China. But I'll tell you something, you know, this is very similar. It reminds me of the case of the uh, lasagna that was uh, supposed to be beef, but almost entirely made of horse meat. And actually, people didn't understand the way that these interconnected uh, supply chains mean that it's a Romanian abattoir that's supplying the beef in your lasagna in the U UK. And I think that's the same with a lot of manufactured products. People simply do not realise how much is manufactured in China. But the other thing, and this is a question that I haven't got the answer to, but I think we have to remain thinking about it. We've talked for years about equal but different, um, and we've allowed horrible authoritarian regimes to financially benefit from being dictators. And, and we need to think very long and hard about whether that's appropriate. Mm, well, I can tell you what you can do. You can think long and hard about whether it's appropriate during the break. Uh, we're going to take two minutes when we come back. Um, I found something quite fascinating, actually. Jeremy Corbyn, remember him? Uh, you'll, if you're familiar with him, you'll know anyway. Uh, he's repeatedly said, hasn't he, that things like NATO, alliances like NATO, should be ultimately disbanded. Uh, nothing new there, but he's repeated these calls. What I find fascinating, though, by the way, is the amount of people that basically just dismiss him, say he's talking absolute nonsense. And I thought to myself, well, let me explore this. Is he talking nonsense? What do you think to alliances like NATO? Are they essential or not? We'll have that and more. Uh, I want to read out some of your comments, by the way, because some of you are really making me smile tonight. I tell you, uh, I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubry. <laughs> Just a quick reminder as to my panel tonight. Andre Walker, uh, the commentator, political commentator, Lee Jones, Professor of Political Economy and International Relations, and Mary Ann O'Hotter, uh, the anthropologist. Mary Ann just said to me, when you introduce us, Michelle, uh, do you need us to say hello so that the people on the radio um, know who's who? And I said, no, I don't need you to do that because I suspect most people will know the difference, Mary Ann, between you and Andre. But in this very strange world that we live in, anyone can identifies anything, quite frankly, can't they, these days? So the, the higher voice you hear is Marianne. It's you, isn't it, Marianne? Hello. That's Marianne. Hello. Lee. Yes, hello. Lee. Go on, Andre. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and I'm the northern one in the middle. Uh, someone described Wait, my Wait, no, we're all northern. Are we? I think so. I'm from Cheshire. Where, Where are you from? That's not from? the proper north. <laughs> Where are you from? North. Uh, I'm from Manchester. Oh, right. Oh, well, there you go. Um, my accent, by the way, was described the other day as um, uh, an out-of-date violin or something, an out-of-date <laughs> cat or something getting ran over by a lawnmower. Listen, we loved you in Biker Grove. I thought that was a bit harsh. <laughs> Biker Grove. Oh, yes, I remember Biker Grove. Show my age. I'll tell you what, by the way, I'm going massively off-topic, but since you mentioned <laughs> pigeons earlier on, if you missed the show, uh, Lee was saying that the pigeons was coming home to roost, of course, the saying is that the chickens were coming home to roost. And I don't know why, but I personally spent that entire... Tire break thinking about Jack Duckworth from Coronation Street used to have pigeons in his back garden. 
Does anyone remember that? Well, my yeah, granddad used to race pigeons. Did he? That's why I said I was really still chatting do my still granddad. Do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People still race yeah. pigeons. Yeah. Do you? I know race someone pigeons? called Radshu races. I've got, I've got a friend who's the Queen's budgerigar keeper. Oh, Can I right, believe a, that exists? Right, A, we're going <laughs> massive off topic now. Before we know it, I don't know, I dread to think where this conversation is going to end up, but uh, I'm going to bring it back on topic because I want to get into this debate, actually, this next one. Uh, the former Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, of course, I mean, he's been saying this for ages, hasn't he? He's saying that he hopes that NATO uh, could be ultimately disbanded. And he talks basically, not just NATO, by the way, it's broader about different military alliances. He's suggesting that perhaps they create greater danger in the world. Let's get to the nuts and bolts of all of this, shall we? Uh, Andre Walker, do we need uh, NATO? Let's NATO, keep it with NATO initially. Do we need NATO? Oh, I hate you. I wanted to have a go at Jeremy Corbyn, but all right, we'll keep it with NATO. I'm, I'm all right with that. Why do you um, want to have a go at Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, simply because I think that he's never been proved right on anything. I think people think of him <laughs> as an old uncle who's quite pleasant, whereas actually I think he's an evil man who supports the enemies of the United Kingdom on a regular basis. I think his contribution to Northern Irish peace was that he supported the terrorists, and I find that pretty offensive as somebody who's got a Northern Irish family. But anyway... Right, on, good. You got that off your chest. Uh, on, off the chest. Yes, there we go. Done. Done. <laughs> Come on, it's GB News. Um, right, on the issue of NATO, look, I think that um, it, it feels pretty outdated when there's no Warsaw Pact to have a NATO. But at the same time, I think what we've seen by the behaviour of the Russian government is that we do need to protect ourselves. You know, remember, Ukraine is the world's only former nuclear power, the only country ever to have given up nuclear weapons. Now, admittedly, it inherited them from the Soviet Union and there was never really a chance they were going to keep them. But at the same time, they're not protected in the way that potentially we are. But... The concern is always for somebody like me on the right about these organisations existing because they've always existed. I think it was Dan Hannan who said that once a, uh, once a bureaucracy is created, it's hard to shut it down. He even suggested the League of Nations, even though it has no corporate members, still has a couple of members of staff and publishes a report every now and again. So if it's about bureaucracy, then we need to uh, get rid of it. But if it's about defence, then maybe we should keep it. But, but look, Jeremy Corbyn's motivation will be that presumably he wants the bad guys to win. That's, that's the form he normally goes well, what by he, anyway. Yeah, what he's saying is he's questioning whether military alliances bring peace. Uh, and I'm just trying to quote him directly so I don't misquote. Uh, he asks, or do they actually encourage each other and build up to a greater danger? Lee? Well, I think historically, um, alliances often do bring war rather than peace. I mean, we only have to think back famously to World War One, where Europe was divided between rival alliance blocs and then imperial uh, inter-imperial struggles between them led to war between the alliance blocs and, and that led to a total, uh, a total war in Europe and across the entire world. I think when it comes to NATO, um, Andre's right that after the end of the Cold War, the reason for NATO to exist disappeared on paper. It was supposed to be a defence pact against the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact in Eastern Europe. So what NATO did after the Cold War was to try to find a new reason to exist. And what it found was humanitarian warfare, which is the use of military power to pursue liberal goals um, outside of the area of NATO. So when people talk about NATO as only being a defensive alliance that couldn't possibly provoke anybody, they forget the record. They forget NATO intervention in the Balkans. They forget the NATO bombing campaign over Kosovo, which led to the... Um, 
the secession of Kosovo from Serbia and provided then a script for people like Vladimir Putin to use in every intervention since then. They forget the invasion of Afghanistan, the disastrous 20-year occupation there that only led to the Taliban retaking power after 71,000 civilians being killed and the cost of $2 trillion. They forget Libya, where NATO vastly exceeded a UN mandate to protect civilians and overthrew the Gaddafi regime and left the country in total chaos, um, riven by warlordism, slave markets, people traffickers and so on. This is the legacy of NATO. It's what a friend of mine calls in his book Cosmopolitan Dystopia. The use of force to pursue these liberal values, I think, has had a disastrous impact on the periphery of NATO. Marianne? I think we have to remember that Jeremy Corbyn is a, a sort of a, a, one of the few to his credit, values-driven politicians. He actually believes in what he says, mm. but he's also an idealist. So he's talking in abstract terms, you know. He wants a world where peace rules. Now, I think, hopefully, all of us can subscribe to that, but he doesn't then necessarily, very coherently, translate that into, OK, but we don't live in an idealistic world, which is a kind of beautiful vision... We live in a kind of messy, complex reality where you go, well, it's all well and good saying we don't need nuclear deterrence, we don't need standing armies because we shouldn't be having wars. Absolutely, Jez, but we don't live in that world, so what do we do in, in, in real and, and, and realistic terms? And I think fundamentally, and I say this un unwillingly almost, I, I wish it weren't true, but NATO does act as a, a, a deterrent it's, it's a, an alliance of global powers that can stand up to the likes of Russia or China to, to balance those global powers and, and those kind of power struggles. If we didn't have NATO, then we'd be looking at individual um, nation states which don't necessarily have the, the, the muscle to stand up to Russia or China, or we're looking at more political blocks like the EU or toothless blocks like the UN who can't do anything. Can I, can I, can I very quick, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I just, want to, I just want to go back to Lee's point. And it's not that I necessarily disagree with anything that's been said. It's more the point that I think what, what you've done is potentially put together the whole blurite idea of this sort of liberal intervention with NATO. I, I just don't feel that the, the core of what we're talking about in terms of Corbyn is what you were talking about in terms of the interventions that took place under Bush and Blair and Clinton. And so I don't think that the argument about the division of Serbia necessarily translates to abolishing NATO today. No. Well, I think you just have to look at what NATO's actually used for. And NATO is used for these things. And, of course, it's not only under Blair. I mean, the, the intervention in Libya, for example, was under David Cameron. Cameron. And the uh, invasion of Afghanistan was... was well, that took 20 years, so it's under administrations of both parties. It seems that Western governments are addicted to intervention. So the difficulty... And this is, this is something that many people have critiqued over, over hundreds of years. When you have standing armies, when you have military apparatuses, when you have a powerful alliance system, it's very tempting for leaders who want to project their values and their ambitions globally. Let's just make use of that. Let's use it for our ambitions. Let's use it for our goals. And the reality, the legacy of all these interventions is utter chaos. And I think also when we think about the expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe, for decades, policymakers, scholars in the United States, in the West, were warning that this expansion of NATO towards Russia's borders was going to be disastrous and provocative. So if you take, for example, the current head 
Biden's CIA director, William Burns, who is a career diplomat. He's spent a lot of time in Moscow. He said in 1995, hostility to NATO expansion is almost universally felt in Russia. When NATO expanded to include Poland, Hungary and Czechoslovakia, he said it was premature at best and needlessly provocative at worst. In 2008, when he was ambassador to Moscow, he said Ukrainian entry to NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite, not just Putin, even Putin's sharpest critics were opposed to it. So the, the problem is when NATO exists, some use is found for it, expansionism becomes its, its raison d'etre. So I think what Corbyn's hinting at is the idea that the existence of these blocks is, is, is in and of themselves tends to lead to violence and conflict. And I think the historical record actually proves him right. Marianne, did you want to come back? I'm not sure if that's true. I think if NATO didn't exist, if Poland hadn't been or isn't a, weren't a member of NATO, then some of those Russian bombs, some of those missiles would have found themselves much, much closer to the border. I actually, do you know, I was, I was working uh, on aid in Ukraine and Poland, and it has to be said, uh, the reason that our distribution centres in Poland were not being cruise missile attacked was that Poland was a member of NATO. Now, that, that's, not, that's not necessarily an argument against what, um, what Corbyn's saying in terms of the concept, but in practicality, that was undoubtedly true. See, I'm finding it quite fascinating. There's quite a lot of emails coming through as we're talking about this topic. And there's quite a few people that are actually, you're being critical of NATO basically for not doing more in the Ukrainian situation. And when you say not doing more, I can only assume, by the way, uh, that what you mean is that they've not put boots on the ground, essentially, or been more proactive um, in terms of no-fly zones, etc. And I find this personally absolutely fascinating because the last thing I personally want is for NATO to get more involved in this conflict in Ukraine rather than less. But the sentiment that's coming through on their emails, certainly, is that lots of you want NATO to be more involved with uh, the situation in Ukraine. Lee, do you think that's sensible or not? Well, I've said it before, but I'll say it again, is that more involvement, such as a no-fly zone, means war with Russia. If you want to enforce a no-fly zone over a territory, you have to be prepared to shoot down enemy aircraft that enter that no-fly zone. That means NATO, um, NATO warplanes shooting down Russian warplanes. That means war between the NATO bloc and Russia. That means war between nuclear armed states. We all need to avoid that escalation. It is incredibly dangerous. I mean, as somebody who lives in London, you know, London is going to be one of the first targets to although, be hit by Russian nuclear, nuclear although, missiles. Although it is, no, thank you. Although it is, worth point, <laughs> it is worth pointing out that Russia occasionally makes incursions into Turkey. I think, what, in the past 10 years, Turkey's shot down about three or four uh, Russian jets, and they're a NATO country, and so I don't think it's necessary. I'm not, that's, not my argue, that's not an argument necessarily in favour of a no-fly zone, but it is not true to say that NATO jets do not shoot down Russian jets. It happens fairly regularly. Take, Turkey takes the decision, presumably, not to trigger the article of collective defence and call NATO to its aid. It doesn't need to. This is in the context of what is considered an existential war for Russia. There's no way that, it's, that, that Russia is going to tolerate having its planes shot down in the skies over Ukraine and not retaliate against NATO. It's, we shouldn't even be thinking about this. It's hysterical. It's dangerous 
to consider nuclear nuclear war. The fact that that is even on the table is terrifying and shows you the mess Lee, that we've got. But into. Lee, Lee you, you seem like a nice bloke, but this is what people said. This is what people said in the 1980s about Thatcher and Reagan when they stood up to the Soviet Union and stood up to the Warsaw Pact. You know, I think sometimes you have to turn around and say, we are going to defend our interests. And let's be clear, there's a genocide taking place. And you mentioned Kosovo earlier. Remember, we invaded Kosovo against the Russia. The Russians didn't want it. They were the people that arrived at Pristina Airport and we surrounded the airport and laid siege to it. You know, it's not true to say that we've never, ever had an altercation with the Russians. But also, as well, it does kind of prove the deterrent that nuclear weapons are. And I think that was the point that one of you guys uh, were making earlier on, because who wouldn't want to live in a world that was, that was free of nuclear weapons? That would be absolutely ideal, wouldn't it? Uh, but this whole conversation often shows just what an uh, effective deterrent they are. Anyway, long story short, let's summarise. Uh, NATO, Jeremy Corbyn, he thinks get rid of it. Should we oh, get rid of NATO, yes well, or no? we've got to keep it now. So you're, you want to keep NATO. Marianne, keep it, yes yep. or no? You want to keep it. Lee, do you want to keep it, yes or no? No. No, he does not. Mixed viewers coming on, I tell you. Mixed viewers coming in from you, Phil says. Um, sorry, Bernard says, NATO can't do any more if members of NATO don't give them permission to do more. I tell you what we should all be trying to do more of, de-escalation, if you ask me. Uh, anyway, I've spoke so much about NATO that I've almost run out of time to wish the Queen happy birthday. I'm sure, Your Majesty, you're watching uh, the pledge tonight on your special day, so uh, happy birthday from all of us to you. Uh, that is pretty much all we've got time for, though. Marianne, uh, Lee, Andre, thank you very much uh, for your company. I shall be going off and thinking some more about pigeons tonight <laughs> and pigeon racing. Pigeon I've pie. Got... Oh, you can't. Andre has a pigeon pie. I'm going to try and stop eating animals anyway. I think it's cool, but that's a whole other topic. Anyway, that is all we've got time for. Thank you for your company. Uh, have yourself a fantastic evening and I will see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co. the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.